There was a dumpy little man by the name of Humpty. You've probably heard of him. He was at the top of his game, and he was sitting on the wall that he had built. He held a high position. Maybe it was in society or business or politics, or maybe he was, uh, in some regard, he was just well thought of in the community. And he loved to be seated on the top of his wall where he could look down from his high position. But one day his world was shattered. Everything in his world fell apart. He had a great fall. But rather than calling on the church to help him come and fix his brokenness, he asked the government for help. We know that because all the king's horses and all the king's men showed up. Mr. Dumpty called on those that he felt were the best in the world, the world had to offer to come and fix his problems and put his life back together. So the government showed up, all the king's horses and all the king's men. That would be the king's military might, the full might of the military, all the king's horses and the best minds and the best advisors in the realm. And they said, to quote Ronald Reagan, we are here from the government, we are here to help you. Now today we would say that Mr. Dumpty had the White House, the Congress, the military, and every other human authority, every other human power you can think of to come to his aid in his brokenness. But the tragedy is none of those human powers could put Mr. Dumpty's life or his world back together again. So I'd like to quote Dr. Tony Evans, his take on Humpty Dumpty from his book, The Kingdom of Agenda, Life Under God. He wrote, Now it's one thing when a nursery rhyme character cannot find the help he needs to repair his shattered world. Even when his problems be attended to by the highest authorities, the culture has to offer. But it's another thing altogether when real people in the real world discover that all the king's horses and all the king's men, human institutions of power and influence, can't fix society's deepest problems and address people's deepest needs. Although we should never look to government to solve all our problems, governments were established to, at a minimum, address the needs of those governed. Surely all the king's horses and all the king's men ought to have had a strategy for putting Mr. Dumpty back together again. So the question is this morning, on this July 5th, the day after July 4th, 2020, how does the brokenness in a nation get so extreme that the best in the nation can't fix it? This past week, I enjoyed watching a four-part documentary series on Netflix called Bobby for President. Jan indulges me in these. <laughs> you know, I, I love you know, historical documentaries and dramas and all that kind of stuff. And It was Bobby for President. Of course, you would recognize that it was about the life of Robert F. Kennedy, who was assassinated in 1968, five years after his brother JFK was assassinated. And on the last night of his presidential campaign in Los Angeles, California, when he had sewn up the Democratic nomination for president, he was shot and killed. It was just three months after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And if you are old enough to remember it, and most of us are here, you remember the 60s and early 70s were turbulent, violent times in our country, in our world. In 1968, there was the Vietnam War's Tet Offensive. There were riots in Washington, D.C. There were the student protests and riots. There was the landmark Civil Rights Act. 
and, and our, our country was marked with the heightened unrest and violence over Vietnam and over values and over race. Does it sound familiar? I've often said it's a miracle any of us survived the 60s. But what struck me is that 50 years later, 51, 52 years later now, not a single divisive issue or severe problem in our country at that time that was discussed in the documentary has been resolved to this day. Not a single one. And lately I have to admit also that I've been watching the TV show West Wing probably for the third time. Netflix is really running out of good shows to watch, but this one's pretty good. And I don't agree with the politics of West Wing and, and President Bartlett uh, you know, on West Wing on a lot of issues. But since that show aired in the late 90s and early 2000s, our leaders have yet to resolve any of the issues they talked about and discussed and debated. And if you want to really get both sides of an issue, watch West Wing. Because they, they argue, they debate, they yell at each other. I mean, they do all kinds of things, but you really hear what the arguments are on all kinds of issues. But why hasn't it been fixed? Why can't they fix what is broken in our country and in people's lives? So look once again at Set Chronicles, the 15th chapter, the 5th verse. In Set Chronicles chapter 15, Asa is the king. Now, he's the king of Judah. But in this text, you hear Israel mention, you hear Judah mention. Uh, the, he, Asa was the third king after King Solomon died, and he was the king of the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. And then, of course, there was the northern kingdom called Israel, which was the other ten, ten tribes, and it had been divided. And you remember that every king of Israel was evil or worst <laughs> you know, in the northern kingdom. And in the southern kingdom, Judah... They had some good kings, and they had some godly kings, and Asa was one of those. But by the time King Asa became king, the infection of sin in both of the kingdoms, especially the sin of idolatry, was so, there was just a matter of time before the kingdoms would collapse, socially, economically, every which way, other than being invaded by Nebuchadnezzar or something like that, but... Uh, and so we get to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. The kingdoms have collapsed. And so look at, look at verse 5 that describes these times. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. Now if you like to write in your Bible, feel free to write in the margin of your Bible out there, July 5th, 2020, USA. There was no shalom. That's the word for peace. Shalom just doesn't mean peace as, oh, we've got peace. Shalom means peace in the sense of completeness, in the sense of soundness, in the sense of well-being. No matter where you went, there was no peace. There was no sense of well-being. Why? For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. The word translated disturbances there refers to a tumult, to a confusion, a chaos. Everywhere you go, there's chaos, there's confusion. This was the breakdown of all of society. One disturbance rolling in after another, rolling in like gigantic waves, waves, first wave, second wave, third wave, economic collapse, moral collapse, religious collapse, social collapse. And verse 6 says, Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. 
you know, that was probably, there's probably wars and those kind of things going on, but that's no different than our world today. Every city and every nation is trying to get on top of everybody else, whether it's by war or by its economics or, or whatever it is. So there was worldwide chaos, confusion, and affliction. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. But what was the source of all of this? End of verse 6. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. God did it. God did it. The word translated trouble means to make a noise, to cause a, a ruckus. It's the kind of thing, you know, when, when uh, the thief of the night would come, you know, we kind of think of a thief of the night coming as a cat burglar, those kind of things. In, in biblical times, when the thief of the night came, they came with ha horses and camels and swords, and they would bang these noises because they knew that if they could create chaos, you know, it's kind of like in the Old West where the cowboys come and the robbers come shooting and those kind of things. Because once the chaos starts, you've got them. It means to throw into confusion. Jeremiah uses the word of when Nebuchadnezzar crushed Jerusalem. That's the same word here. But God did it. God brought the whole thing down on them. And why? You know, it's like God came up behind Mr. Dumpty who was sanctimoniously and arrogantly sitting on his wall, and God banged these massive symbols or whatever it was behind him and created a ruckus, and he came down, his whole world fell apart, and he lay there broken. And all the king's men and all the king's horses couldn't put him back together again. Why would God do such a thing? Here's a picture of great spiritual and social chaos. The breakdown of a society. What went wrong? We see here in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3, that there are three crucial things that were missing in Israel's national life. Three things that were missing in their national life. And in our national life in America, they're missing today as well. Verse 3. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. The first thing that was missing was the true God. They had left the true God out of their national life. Yes, they were still going to the temple. They were still sacrificing on the altars to God. But all of Israel had lost a correct view of God. They were no longer accomplishing what God wanted them to accomplish. You see, they wanted a convenient God whom they could control. They didn't want a God who would interfere in their lives. They just wanted a God who was a figurehead, a puppet who didn't mess around with their own goals and agenda. They didn't want the true God telling them what to do and how to live and what is right and what is wrong. The problem is the true God does not adjust to you. You adjust to him, right? We all do. Israel didn't want the true God interfering in their national life reminding them that he had an agenda greater than their personal interests and desires. Our culture doesn't want a God like that either, do they? How do I know that? For one thing, just a simple example, the United States Senate opens up every session with prayer, right? And then they spend the rest of their time arguing and debating like God doesn't exist, right? Yeah. And since 1962, when the Supreme Court kicked basically kicked prayer and God out of the public schools, 
Congress has effectively legislated God out of every area of public life and discourse. America has a convenient God. 9-11, we go to the churches, we pray, we fill the pews for a few Sundays, and then what? No more. You see, God is seen as a harmless deity who doesn't have anything significant to say about educational, scientific, entertainment, civic, political, familial, legal, or racial issues of the day. They're trying to leave God completely out. When was the last time you ever heard anyone on Fox News or CNN, and none of you listen to CNN, I'm sure, Fox News or CNN, ask a guest, what do you think God really thinks about this? Let's open our Bibles and see, see what God has to say about this. You go, well, that's not their place. I go, why not? <laughs> why not? What does it really mean to ask the true God to bless America? The second problem in Israel was a lack of teaching priest. In 2 Chronicles 15.3 again, For many days Israel is without the true God and without a teaching priest. A teaching priest. There wasn't a single teaching priest. 2 Chronicles 15.3 doesn't say there were no priests, but the priest had stopped teaching the truth. The temple was no longer the epicenter, the center of all life and conscience and of the culture, and as a result, people were no longer taking God seriously. In fact, in Israel, they were worshiping idols instead of God. There was an absence of spiritual leaders who took God spiritually and or, Uh, seriously, and the authority of Scripture for all of life, seriously. With the lack of truth, it leads to a society without a conscience. You've probably heard this before, and it's true. The church is to be the conscience of society. The church is to be the conscience of, of, of our government. People have become numbed in their consciences, losing a sense of, of right and wrong. In such a society, every person becomes a law unto himself or herself, and so chaos rules. That's what happened during the time of the judge in Israel's early history. Remember that? Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, for everyone did what was right in her or his own eyes. In the margin of your Bible of July 5th, 2020, you might want to read, put Judges chapter 17, verse 6. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, we live in a world where everybody's truth is true. And everybody's answers are right. That's called postmodernism, philosophically. And the truth of it is that's the way people think. You have your truth, I have my truth. In postmodernism, as opposed to modernism, in modernism, you have your truth, I have my truth. And so let's all try to get along with our own truth. In postmodernism, you have your truth, I have my truth, and it's my truth, my truth is right. All you got to do is watch the talk shows. You know, whoever thinks they have the best argument and studied it the most and really are the smartest in the world, then their truth is right. And what really happens is nobody's truth is true. Only God's truth is true. Nobody else's truth is true. And no one's answers, therefore, end up being right. When a society loses its meaning... Because people are never really sure about anything, you know, then, then everything is untruth. And of course, as believers, we know that there's only one standard of truth, and it's the changeless word of the one true God. 
The third missing ingredient in Israel was God's law. God's law. For many days, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest. And without law doesn't mean they didn't have the law. Without law means lawlessness. When a culture has a false view of God built on bad information, God begins to remove his restraint of his law, and evil begins to grow unbridled. God removes his restraint. What we're seeing today in the rapid deterioration of our culture in America is the reality that God is more and more removing his restraint. Turn over to Romans chapter 1, verse 32, 33 for a minute. Maybe it's 32. When I get there, I'll know if it's 30. It's 32. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. And in three times, I'm not going to read all of this in this chapter, but three times here in Romans, it says, God gave them over. God gave them over. In other words, he removed his restraint. When God gives a people over, it means that he lets them do whatever they want. And that is what we know as what is called the passive judgment of God or the passive wrath of God. God just lets them do what what they want. He gives them over to whatever it is they want to do and those kind of things. We see in verse 24, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. God gives them over. Run after that. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And this is called the passive judgment or wrath of God. Now, in the active judgment or wrath of God, he rains fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah, or he destroys the entire planet with the flood. But in the passive judgment of God, he just gives them over so that they face the dire consequences of the rebellion. So verse 32 is the clincher here that tells me without a doubt that America is suffering under the passive wrath and judgment of God in the sense that it is God who has troubled America with every kind of distress. Verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Hearty approval to those who practice them. Our Supreme Court decision has given hearty approval in the sense that they have allowed the abortion of 50 million babies since their decision. And people in our country have cheered their decision and still do to this day. It's still a major political thing every every election. The Supreme Court has redefined the biblical meaning of marriage, and people cheered. Marriage was instituted by God from the very beginning to be a living illustration of Christ's love for the church. And now it's been redefined by the Supreme Court. And I've already mentioned taking prayer out of public life, taking God out of public life. You know, even sinners who respect God won't do certain things. But once God is removed or marginalized in a culture, the standard for a society is gone. And God becomes one's worst enemy and worst nightmare. That's what happened in Israel. When the rule of God is missing, chaos replaces community. 
You cannot have order and structure in society without God. Men become enslaved by the very freedoms that they seek. We have ungodly people in our country who don't want any divine standard to which they must be held accountable. But we haven't got to the truly disconcerting part yet. Oh boy. (laughs) Because there is something that is very disconcerting part. There is no doubt that the United States of America is under the passive judgment of God. What about his active wrath and judgment? You see, how we see it work in Scripture, and I remember it, we were in Elko, Nevada, when I heard a sermon by Charles Stanley called When God Judges a Nation. And it was one of the best sermons I've ever heard. I've tried to find it recently just to see, you know, see if I remember you know, what he said and those kind of things. But that, that many years ago, and, and he, he recognized from his biblical study of Scripture that when God removes his hand of blessing, and his activity in a nation, and gives them over, people are free to do whatever they want. And they think they're getting away with it. No lightning bolts from heaven. You ever been watching TV and just saying, boy, how do you say that without getting struck? (laughs) They rationalize the consequences, whatever the consequences of their sin and lack of restraint. They go, well, you know, and they have all kinds of reasons why, why that's okay. And then they try to solve all their problems on their own. And God just lets them do whatever they want. And they think they're getting away with it. We are okay with God. They don't recognize God has removed his hand. But God will bring his hand down once again. And the question is this. Will God bring his hand down in revival and blessing through the Holy Spirit, as he has done in America so many times. You know, the 20th century in America was the only century in our 400 years that God did not visit national revival in our country. And now we're into the 21st century. Will God bring his hand of blessing down, bringing people to repentance, turning them to him, into relationship with him through Jesus Christ? Will there be an awakening in America again? Or will he bring his hand down in judgment? His active wrath. God's hands are up here. What will be his next move in America as a nation? When God leaves the society, all hope goes with him. As long as you have God, you always have hope. He's the one thing you can bank on. If God is still in the picture... As long as his agenda, his kingdom agenda is on the table, it's not over till it's over. Even if circumstances collapse around you, God will keep you as long as God is front and center. And as long as he's front and center in the culture, there's hope. And the stunning thing about the situation in 2 Chronicles 15 is that God was the cause of Israel's distress, not the sinners in the culture, not all those people that do this and do that and the other thing. They weren't the cause of Israel's distress, not even Satan. And Tony Evans says, now when God is your problem, God is your only solution. Right? If God is upset, it doesn't matter who you elect. It doesn't matter what programs you initiate. It doesn't matter what political views you hold and advocate for. It doesn't matter what you post on Facebook. It doesn't matter what money is defunded or funded or whatever. And this is what Dr. Evans has to say about this in his book, The Kingdom Agenda. Until God's anger is assuaged, you won't be able to fix what's wrong or spend enough money to buy your way out of your dilemma. 
This is the heart of your problems today. Too many individuals, families, churches, and communities want to keep God on the fringes of our lives. There he can be accessible if we have need, but we can keep him far enough away from the center of our lives that he doesn't start messing with our agendas. But as long as we keep God at a distance, he will not take over the control center of our world and unrighteousness will rule. He'll be close enough for invocations and benedictions, but not part of the debate in between. The net result of all this is that we are seeing the devolution of mankind. The more we marginalize God, the worse things get. That is what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, thankfully, we find the solution and the hope in 2 Chronicles chapter 15 as well. The hope and the solution. When King Asa went out to meet the prophet Azariah, we find that hope. Just want to mention here, you know, sometimes people wonder, why do you go to the Old Testament for this stuff? Isn't the Old Testament for people? Isn't this about Israel and, and, uh, and those kind of things? And what does that have to do with us today? Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite verses in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What was written in Second Chronicles was written for our instruction that we might have hope. And so, let's look at that hope. This, this just isn't about Israelites and Judah and kings and, and prophets and idolatry and the people of the time. This was written for our instruction, that we might have hope. And here we see hope for America and for our own lives in verse 2, 2 Chronicles 15. And Azariah the prophet went out to meet King Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Verse 4. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel. And they sought him, and he let them find him. Turn to the Lord God. King Asa led the kingdom in two reforms. The first thing he did was he tore down all the altars to the idols, tore them all down. And then he commanded the people to return to the Lord. What? I thought we had freedom. <laughs> the king commanded the people to return to the Lord, and God gave them 10 years of shalom. 10 years of shalom. And during that time, the people gathered together as one to reaffirm their covenant with God. Covenant with God. Revival always begins in the individual hearts of those who seek the Lord and turn to him. Begin with King Asa, and then it went through the entire kingdom. So turn over to the seventh chapter of Second Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, that familiar verse in verse 14 that we read for the call to worship this morning. Because the key to understanding how a nation is restored, the key to understanding how a city or a family is restored, 
is not so much that unrighteousness is present and, and things have gotten really bad. The key is that God's glory has left. God has removed his glory. God's glory has been marginalized. You see, the context of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 7.14, this familiar verse is very important because the verse actually continues a sentence that begins in verse 13. You know, and so to quote just 14, we have to add another word to make it a, a real, real sentence. And, and this verse 13 follows that God's glory filled the temple. So let's set the stage here. The occasion is the dedication of Solomon's great temple. Solomon offers a, dedic a dedicatory prayer in chapter 6 in which he says, in essence, Lord, I want to lead your people in righteousness. Lord, I want to lead this people in honoring you, and I want to do it in the way, God, you want it done. And in verses 1 through 10, God's glory came down and filled the temple. God was present with them, and the people offered sacrifices and held a feast. And that's where we pick it up in verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a place of sacrifice, a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence among the people. See, there's God doing that again. If I do this, if I do this, if I do this, says the Lord God. Verse 14. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. First of all, we see God calls a nation to pray. God calls a nation to pray. Prayer, as you know, is an earthly request for a heavenly intervention. We need God to do something. We want God to do something. We want to know God's will. God intervene in this. Prayer is a tool, prayer is the strategy that we have been given to pull something out of the invisible into the visible, to pull it out of the spiritual realm into our, our physical realm. So we see whose prayers here get through to God. My people who are called by my name, God says, this tells us who can pray. When God says my people are to pray, he's talking about his Covenant people, those who are in covenant relationship with him. In the Old Testament, his covenant people were Israel. In the New Testament, his covenant people is the church, the church, the body of believers who follow Jesus Christ. That's why we call it the New Covenant, the New Testament. That's what testament means, it's the new, new covenant. And so we are his people who are called by his name. Did you know that God is not obligated to hear the prayers of sinners? Not obligated at all, unless they are asking for forgiveness. Then he obligates himself. God is under no obligation to sinners who pray because they are not his people. 
They are not in covenant relationship with him. Now, I know God answers a lot of prayers because he's going to bring that person to Jesus Christ. I, I'd hate to think of the times that God protected us before we came to Christ, so we come to Christ. And so, so there's a sense, but he probably answered your grandmother's prayers in that case. Probably not, probably not your prayers. He, he's no, no under, under no obligation to sinners who pray because they are not his people who have been called by his name. But as Christians... We have full access to heaven's ears. We have full access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. Only God's children have access through the throne of grace. If, if God has decided to allow America to decline, only Christians have access to God and can bring that to God. Let that truth sink in for a minute. Only we as Christians have access to God and can bring that to God. The principle here is that of representation. That it's only through God's appointed representatives who get through to him. As his people, we can get through to him because we bear his name, which means we are under his authority. When God calls us his people, he's saying, you belong to me. You are called to live under my authority. And then he says in verse 14, that when we pray, we must have a proper attitude of the heart. Every time we pray, and especially when we pray for our country. He says we need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. Humble Christians get through to God. Humility carries the idea of complete dependency. It marks through understand, as Jesus said, without me you can do no thing, nothing. That's her humility. You see, too many people are autonomous and self-sufficient in their own minds. The Bible calls this being haughty. We could call it being Humpty Dumpty. Because they really believe that they don't need God. God is for emergencies only. But when we kneel and lie prostrate before the Lord, and I'm talking about a physical position, posture that represents the posture of our heart here, when we kneel or lie prostrate before the Lord, we are demonstrating humility. God says, if you want to get my attention, humble yourselves. And then he says, seek my face. Seek my face. That means we want to restore, he wants, we want to restore fellowship with him. We want to focus on being in his presence as Moses was speaking to God face-to-face -face in his presence. We want to seek to be in his presence. One of my favorite quotes from A.W. Tozier is, Ransomed men and women need no longer pause in fear to enter the Holy of Holies. God wills that we should push through the veil into his presence and live our whole life there. He says this is more than a doctrine to be held. It is life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. We humble ourselves, we pray, we seek his face, then what? And we turn from our wicked ways. He says, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. This really takes an unexpected turn here, doesn't it? We pray... We seek God's face, 
We humble ourselves. He hears from heaven. He forgives our sin and he heals our land. But we haven't talked about all those idiots you see on Facebook that are screwing this country up so badly. Can I say that word? (laughs) You know what I mean? What about the sins of the unrighteous, Lord? What about those people that are, are messing up our nation? What about these people that are doing that and the other thing that we see on the news and those kind of things? What about my least favorite politician that I disagree with and God has set everybody right about this guy? No. Sure, we're to pray for all those people with a humble part, heart, with the right motives. Paul told Timothy, first of all, pray for those who are in authority and for kings and, and other people. We, we pray for those. But the healing of our land doesn't begin out there. The healing of our land begins in each one of our hearts because we are his people. When we as God's people have fulfilled his conditions and come to him on his terms, not ours, then he will hear us and not until then. You see, here's the deal. Because of sin, we're all broken. That's what sin does. It breaks us and it breaks other people. It breaks those that we've sinned against. It's break those who are related to us or around us because of our sin. The Bible says that sin wages war against the soul. What does war do? It breaks things and kills people. That's what the purpose of war, and that's what sin does. It wages war against, it destroys relationships. On account of Adam's sin and fall, all of us are Humpty Dumpty. In fact, in James Joyce, one of his novels, he's the one that, that kind of pointed this out. Humpty Dumpty is about Adam's sin and the fall, and humankind can't fix what sin has broken. Can't do it. That's the crux of the matter. Mankind cannot fix what sin has broken. That's why we need Jesus Christ. And that's why we must receive him for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's why we must humbly seek God and claim that precious promise as a way of life. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Why? Because the wrath of God is against what? All unrighteousness. And he cleanses us so we don't face his wrath. And we are clean. Because until we do that, we are in no position to pray for our nation. We're in no position to pray for our nation. Why not? Because until we humbly seek the Lord, seek his face, come before him, confess our sins, we are part of the problem and not the solution. But the good news is God has given us the solution through Jesus Christ. This is such a wonderful day with what's going on to partake of the table of the Lord in communion, which we will do in just a moment. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, 
we do pray for our nation, Lord. But we do that right now by coming before you humbly, recognizing, Lord, that we have only the grace to speak to you because we are your children who always have access to you, Lord. Father, we thank you that through the, the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Father, that we have forgiveness of sins. Lord, that you have clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. And Father, I thank you for this time as we come to the Lord's table, Father, that you give us an opportunity to examine ourselves, to come humbly before you, to lay it all before you, Father, and recognize what a joy, what a thrill, what a glory to be cleansed of every sin. And Lord, what a privilege to pray for our nation, to pray for our families, to pray for others, Lord, because we have come into your presence through Jesus Christ. And we recognize that it's only through his blood. And so, Father, we pray most of all that we would be used in some small measure, large measure, through your Holy Spirit to bring others to a saving faith in relationship to Jesus Christ. That they might become your children as well and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can't wait to see how that moving through culture and society changes our nation all the way from top to bottom, east to west, north to south, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.